Um, as we begin the sermon, it's, uh, I told you a few weeks ago that I'd be preaching about once a month on evangelism leading up to uh, April and May when we're going to try to take the gospel in a concerted effort into the community with Christianity Explored. One of the things that uh, when we've had visitors uh, that's easy to see up here, it's harder to see out there, is that a lot of people who come don't sing out of hymnals anymore. Um, and don't know how to use a hymnal. I know that sounds weird for those of you who have used hymnals your whole life, but they don't really understand the system because they've probably never been in a church that uses one anymore. They also don't know where to find them, so they'll just kind of stand there while we sing. And, and it's hard for you guys to see that, especially if you're in front, but even if you're behind, you can't usually tell that someone's not holding a hymnal. So... Uh, my wife prints out uh, lyrics of the hymns each week for the kids so it's easier for them to read. And so we're going to start putting a couple of those copies back at the back um, on the table with the bulletins and things. And if we have guests and you notice, just watch them during the first song, and if you notice they're not getting a hymnal out, just one of you go back and grab one of those and just, or a couple of them and give them to them so that they can sing along. Um, and that's just to help. And when we're thinking about um, people who may be coming to church, even if they've been to another church, 95% of churches don't use hymnals anymore. They have a screen or have some other way to do it. And so we want to have people sing if they come. So that's just a, a way that we can try to be accommodating to folks and help them if they come visit. Um, so now that you're aware of that, hopefully you can take advantage of it. Um, it's happened two or three times where I, I have been able to directly see, like, awkwardness. But you can't see that. So now you know there is some, and you can maybe help. Um, so we're going to try to have those ready uh, on all those Sundays or from now on. Uh, I'm trying to think if there was something else I was going to tell you. I don't think so. So uh, this morning we're going to be in Acts um, and we're going to be looking at um, a, a doctrine that you might be comfortable with, you might not be comfortable with. It's the doctrine of election or predestination. And um, it tends to cause people um, misgivings. It tends to make people uncomfortable. You may be one of those people who get uncomfortable with it. Hopefully this morning, though, I'll convince you that it's not only true, but that it's helpful, especially, especially helpful regarding evangelism. Even though many people say predestination, election makes evangelism pointless, I believe, and I think Scripture teaches, that evangelism is based on predestination. That's the only reason we do it. Um, so hopefully you'll see that this morning. We're going to meet Acts chapter 13. And so they are in um, uh, Antioch in, Pers- in Pisidia, which is a different Antioch than Paul is from. So there's two Antiochs. This one is up in what is now modern-day Turkey. So that's where they're at. They've been preaching for some time, and people have been coming to hear. And then uh, we read this in, starting in verse 44 of Acts 13. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. So they've been preaching, and it's been spreading, and people have been 
wondering what's going on, and then a whole slew of people come on the Sabbath to hear. And when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, meaning to the Jews, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you shall bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city and stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. So Paul and Barnabas, they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray this morning. Father, we pray that your word would be helpful and good for us this morning. We pray, Father, that you would do, um, do us good in our spirits so that we might be stirred up with joy and ready to take your word to the ends of the earth. We pray this in the name of your Son. Amen. So I, I focused on verse 48. Uh, the end of verse 48 says, As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. That's the doctrine of predestination. God appointed some men to believe, and all of those men who were appointed on that day, who heard the gospel, believed. That is a doctrine that runs through a lot of scripture, seen and unseen. I'm going to take you to a a verse in Deuteronomy that's really the first explicit mention of this sort of thing in scripture, although it exists in in alliterative ways before this. Deuteronomy chapter 30, this is the end of uh, Moses' sermon to his people right before they enter the promised land. Starting in verse 5. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, so that you may possess it. Now just think of that for a moment. When we're talking about predestination, we're not just talking about this act of belief. We're actually talking about the whole ministration of your life, that it is the whole of your life that God plans and purposes and does. And so here at the end of the Exodus, Moses says to the people, the Lord will bring you into the land and you will possess it because the Lord will do it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And then here is the thing that we generally call election or predestination specifically about salvation, how are men saved. So Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So he says how you're going to end up obeying the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul is that God himself will circumcise your heart. He will do some work within you an invisible work. He will circumcise your heart and you will believe that there's an act that happens on the hearts of the people. 
Another place where we see this sort of thing in Scripture is in Ezra. Um, so the, Ezra is the, is the telling of what happened when Israel came back out of um, their 70-year captivity in Babylon. And what happened after that time is they needed to rebuild the temple and then later the walls of Jerusalem. And so when they get permission, and not only permission, but gold and supplies to rebuild the temple from Cyrus, the king of Persia, uh, they go back to do this. And then in verse 5 of Ezra chapter 1, it says this, Then rose up the heads of the fathers, houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, and then hear this, Everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. That God works in our hearts specifically and in specific people to do specific tasks. And so here in Ezra, when the building of the temple was happening, it wasn't all the people who were stirred up. It was certain people who God chose to stir up who went and rebuilt the temple. They were chosen specifically. And this kind of idea is just all through scripture. I would, um, Sam Waldron is the one who introduced me to this phrase, but it existed before him, I think, and B.B. Warfield coined it. Uh, There's an avalanche of text of scripture about this. And what that means is, if I were to lay out for you every single time God says in his word something like God appointed or God elected or God predestined, I would spend the whole of my sermon reading them to you and would still not have flushed them out. There are hundreds and hundreds of verses like this in Scripture. And so I want you to just, first of all, stop and pause and think. This doctrine, however we feel about it, seems to be very clear in Scripture. One of the clearest in the New Testament is not even here in Acts 13 that we read, um, but is in the book of Ephesians. And this is what Paul writes to the Ephesians. In verse 3 of chapter 1 of Ephesians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. That is one of the most clear statements in Scripture, that it was before the foundation of the earth, which means before any of us existed, that God chose to adopt certain people. Uh, there are many other scriptures we could multiply, but that's the, that's the base of the sermon. Predestination exists. God has the electing power and has done it from all of eternity past. Now, that tends to make us a little bit tense because none of us feel as though our lives are predestined in the day-to-day, right? So... One of the things that Jesus says in uh, Matthew chapter 10 is that not a bird can fall from the heavens apart from the will of the Father. Not a bird can fall 
So every single time you see a bird moving, that's the will of the Father. So even things that aren't directly related to us, humans, are directed by God. Um, Charles Spurgeon, excuse me, the Prince of Preachers, as he is called, was a pastor in the 1800s in England. And he said this in a, in a sermon on Ezekiel, that every single speck of dust that comes down that you see glinting in the sunlight and every single droplet of spray hitting the front of a boat is directed by God. And if one single piece of it was a stray piece of dust or a stray droplet of water, that God would have been lost in all of it. Because this is the real final base question we have to ask. If there is a point at which the universe, whether a speck of dust or an individual human can do something apart from the will of God, then that speck of dust or that human has now exerted himself above God. He has shown that he is more powerful than God. Think of it this way. I have children, five of them sitting back here in various positions and places. Now, they have their own will, And yet, I am absolutely sovereign over them, right? They can exert themselves in a thousand ways. But at the end of the day, one of us will win. Now, my power is limited, right? I don't have total power, but I am sovereign. So if I say to them, to get dessert, you have to eat everything on your plate. That means to get dessert... You have to eat everything on your plate. It doesn't mean sometimes. It means all the time. And so my kids oftentimes ask at dinner when they don't like something, can I have dessert now? And I will say, well, have you finished everything on your plate? No, but I don't like it. I say, well, that's not the rule. The rule isn't if you don't like it, don't worry about it. You don't have to finish it. The rule is finish your food. Now, that is a way in which I... am sovereign over my children. And sometimes to the point of putting food on the fork and putting it into their mouth so that they will finish. Because I actually want my children to get dessert. I don't want them not to get dessert. I want them to go get their candy bucket and get a piece of candy. And I don't want them to deny themselves this treat because they won't put the last bite of food in their mouths. And so I'll put the food on the fork and say, open your mouth. I will have at that point done the work for them so that they might enjoy the reward. Now, who worked there? Who did that? Who made sure that it was going to happen? I did. If it was up to them, they would have miserably went to bed angry and sullen because they didn't get dessert, because they wouldn't eat their last bite of whatever. But I overruled their will. Did they cooperate with me? Yes. But who was really the one acting there? It was me on their behalf to get a good reward. God is the same way. When we are in sin, when we are in our trespasses, when we are outside of Christ, we will gloomily go to our deaths denying everything that we know is good and right and true out of whatever kind of spite, envy, or hatred we have for it, even though we know the reward is good. You can talk to anyone 
almost without fail, although there is a growing contingent of weird atheism that denies anything, but most people will say, I want to go to heaven if there is one. Most people will say that. Even if they don't know what it is, even if they don't understand, they want the good life. They want the good thing. But they will stubbornly, absolutely refuse. And the the problem is what we think happens, what happens in our heads when we see them denying the good end because of their sin, we think, I chose differently. I, I figured it out and ate my vegetables to get my dessert. The reality is all of us, all of us without Christ refuse to eat our vegetables, even though we know the reward is good. We have to be spoon-fed by our God to get the reward. And if he were not a loving God, none of us would get dessert. None of us would inherit eternal life. We would all be mad at the table, refusing to eat our food, sullenly going to our deaths, though we knew the reward was good. This is really the base problem. The base problem is we tend to think those outside of Christ are just willfully, totally ignorant. And so it's all in their hands. The problem is it robs God of his glory and it makes evangelism completely, totally ineffective. It reverses the thing. This happened in mass in the 1800s in the United States. There are two great awakenings that happened in the U.S., The first was in the mid-1700s, about 1735 to 1750. It's called the First Great Awakening, although they didn't call it that then, just like they didn't call World War I, World War I. They called it the Great War. They called it the Great Awakening or something similar to that. It was a phrase and a slew of people converted to Christianity. It was unbelievably powerful. And the thing that marked the First Great Awakening is that it was all of it, almost entirely, based on the idea that God elects those who are going to be saved. The two greatest ambassadors in the United States during the First Great Awakening are George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards. Everyone tends to think it was John Wesley because we have so much of Wesley's influence on the United States through Methodism and Wesleyanism. But John Wesley was only in the United States a few times and spent most of his time in England. George Whitfield was the Methodist who came to the United States and spent the vast majority of the time here. He was heard by up to 20,000 people at a time with no amplification, heard from miles away because the guy had pipes that I could only dream of. And he was a devout believer in the sovereignty of God in election. And Jonathan Edwards was the same. He was the spark at the beginning of um, the Great Awakening, preaching a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. A sermon that was so powerfully effective when it was first preached, he was not able to finish it because the groans from the people in repentance overcame his ability to preach. Both men believed absolutely, in the sovereignty of God to elect people to heaven. And then the Second Great Awakening happened in the early 1800s to about 1850. It's hard to demarcate exactly when it began and ended. It's not as clean as the First Great Awakening. And the main reason it's not as clean is because something began to happen. There were men, Charles Finney, one of them, who were Presbyterians, most of them, 
who began to mechanize salvation. And so what they did is instead of trusting in the God of all things and doing the things that he calls us to do and trusting him with the results, things like preaching and prayer and hoping and and all of these things that we do in, in hopes that people will believe, they thought that if we do it in this way, in this manner, on these sorts of days, and add to it this, that, and the other, that there will be absolutely people who believe. And so they began to believe that the final decision was actually in the hands of man, whether or not to believe, instead of in God's hands. And so they mechanized religion. They began things called revival meetings or camp meetings. It's actually the roots of our church here. Cumberland Presbyterianism is grounded in the kind of actually the bad sorts of stuff from the Second Great Awakening. That doesn't mean everyone involved was a bad player. It just means the fruits of it are still playing out. And what the fruits of it are are this. If you preach in a specific way and if you pray in a certain amount of time, then God will absolutely save those who come. And he will save them in this manner. And so we, Charles Finney invented things like the waiting bench, which is the idea that those who are almost saved should come to the front, who are maybe really close to the kingdom should sit up front. And then what he would do is he invented something called the altar call, which did not exist in the history of Christianity ever before the mid-1800s. And what he did to affect the altar call is he planted seeds in the congregation. And so what that meant is when he would give the altar call, which is everyone who wants to be saved, come forward and we'll put you in the side tent. There would be men and women in the audience who would come who were already believers. They would seed the congregation to have faith to come. And so the thing is, they were mechanizing what is called psychology. That if somebody does first, if somebody acts, then the likelihood of other people acting in a similar manner grows exponentially. So if you seed in a crowd of 500, 10 people to come, 100 people will actually come. Because people will just follow the crowd. They'll follow in mass. Then they began to export this idea. They began to sell it. They began to say, we're coming to this town or this place on this day, on this stuff, and if you come, your neighbors will be saved. Though they could guarantee no such thing. And this began a very massive change in the culture and the context of the church in America that is still prevalent today. We believe, because we look at what people do and we think they just won't choose rightly so we have to make it easy for them to choose that we will do anything to get them to choose rightly even if it means changing the whole context of what Christianity is all about and so we're at the point today where those mechanistic ideas of the 1800s second great awakening have been applied and misapplied and horribly abused to the point where thousands and millions of people watch folks like Benny Hinn and believe that that is the gospel. And yet, Benny Hinn preaches all kinds of things that are not the gospel, including denials of basic essential doctrines of Christianity, like the Trinity. Benny Hinn, I have watched the stuff. 
Benny Hinn says there's a triple trinity, that the Spirit has three, the Son has three, and the Father has three. He publicly proclaims these sorts of things, and yet it is false. But Benny Hinn rakes in the money. He rakes in the TV ratings. People go to him in droves. Why? Because he's figured out mechanistically how to get people to send him money and do things. He's mechanized religion. And the truth of election, predestination, takes absolutely all of our mechanistic ways and grinds them to dust. God will not be made a mockery of. He will not be had. He cannot be bought or sold. He is his own. And he acts for his glory and his glory alone. And we cannot manipulate him. It cannot be done. And so the first way that this doctrine helps us in evangelism, gives ground to us, is it says to us, yes, these are the things that God tends to bless. The preaching of his word, prayer, hope, faith. But it is actually God who does these things. And so when we're getting ready to do this evangelistic outreach in April and May here called Christianity Explored, when you hire a pastor, I've mentioned this, when you hire a pastor hoping that this will turn the tide in a church, the reality is we don't know who or what or how God will act or do or think or do or uh, be in a community. We do the things God has called us to do in faithfulness, in hope believing, but we do not turn it mechanistically into something. We could, if we wanted to, and I have spoken to these sorts of men, fill the pews with people overnight. We could fill this church, I guarantee it, in a year if we wanted to, with all kinds of people. But they would not be necessarily believers. They would just be people in the pews filling the church. There's a church not very far from here. It's in Washington, Indiana. It's called Antioch Bible Church now. It was called, until just a couple of months ago, Antioch Christian Church. And the senior pastor there, who's from Dubois, and the associate pastor there, who's from Washington, about a decade ago, realized that they were doing something possibly that was not good. Their church was about a thousand people. A thousand people. And they realized that what they had been doing was mechanistically manipulating people to come to church, that they would do anything to get people in the building without any sort of hope or care or whether or not they were actually saved or what happened to them afterwards. And so they had this, they have this, it still have it, huge building, huge building out on the, what's the highway that comes this way out of Washington, 56, 57, yeah, whatever it is, coming this way. Massive building. And then about 10 years ago, they kind of thought, you know, I think maybe some of the things we're doing are a little bit manipulative and awful. I think maybe we should stop doing them. And so their elders and their pastors began repenting. And their church, they realized, was full of people who were just there for the dog and pony show. They just wanted the show. And so within about five years, their church went from 1,000 people down to 300 people. In two or three huge chunks. So the first couple of months of the reform 
several hundred people left the church. And then after the reform kind of really took hold, a couple hundred more. And then over the course of about three years, two or three hundred more left. Now, why am I telling you that? Is it to shame those men? No, it's actually to tell you that there are men in Washington, a pastor and an associate pastor, who have been faithful in immense pressure to give in to the mechanistic stuff that they were doing. They know, they know the playbook, how to get people to show up on a Sunday. They could give it to us. Tony Rubel, who is the associate, is a friend of mine at this point, And he's like, Joe, if I wanted to, I could send you the emails with all the playbook rules on how to get people. We have them. We helped write them. We know how it's done. They said, here's the real deal. All it was was mechanistically pretending as though we could manipulate God to build his church. And the reality is we cannot. God will build his church and all that are called will come to him. So that's the first thing. It will absolutely destroy and put to death all of our mechanistic dreams of church growth and church revival and church renewal and slews of people. Not because God can't do that in unbelievable ways. He could fill this church with a thousand people in a year. Three thousand people repented on the day of Pentecost. And thousands more were added in the first few years of the church in Jerusalem. And that has repeated itself through the 2,000 years of church history. Revivals actually do happen. The Great Awakening happened. So it's not that we don't believe it could happen. It's that we cannot trust in our own work to do it. We don't own people. God does. So that's the first thing. It It takes away all of our pride in how our church is built. It keeps us humble. It keeps us from saying, look at this thing. There's a pastor that I've sort of gotten to know in the last few months. And his general attitude in life is like this. I'm going to go out into the audience. I'm going to show you. next guy and that's the problem with not believing in predestination as well is we believe we're the ones who are going to find all the people and get them all in and so we pay very little attention to the people who are already here some of you have been in churches like that the pastor the leaders they did not give two cents about what was happening to you they cared only about what might be over the horizon or the next thing that... And that's the second problem with denying this truth is it makes a church that is basically a cattle stall. It's just a holding cell. 
There's no love. There's no real community. There's no pastoral care or desire to have pastoral care because you're already here. And if you're here, that's the whole point. That's problem number two that this doctrine destroys. I don't have a magic ball. You don't have a magic ball. And what God has given us to be faithful in is the people in the room currently. Our primary, primary thing is not look over the shoulders and find somebody else to fill the pew. It's to actually take care of each other in the pews. That the doctrine of election and predestination frees us from the pressure of filling pews and instead allows us to love one another, to care about each other, to know one another. And that's really one of the biggest things that election and predestination does is it takes all the pressure off. It takes all the pressure off from us having to and instead allows us to just be with one another, to actually care and not be so worried about the next thing. The final way that I'm going to talk about this morning that election helps us is that when we proclaim the gospel, there are generally two responses to it. And the general response are belief and unbelief, right? Now, belief basically is one category that generally looks the same no matter how it plays out, and it's here. The Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. That there will be a joyful response to the gospel when we preach it for those who are called or appointed to eternal life. Because God will say to them, come out of death, awaken, be my child, eat the food, you're mine, I want you to get the reward. And so people will believe and people will rejoice. And so that's... That's the category that we love to see. And then the second category can look in many different ways. Unbelief. Dismissal, obliviousness, hatred, fuming, all kinds of different responses in unbelief land. The Jews here in the passage got super mad that Paul even talked to the Gentiles and started spreading all kinds of vicious lies and rumors. This happens over and over again in the Acts of the Apostles that People get not only just don't like the gospel, but get aggravated at the preaching of the gospel and actively work to suppress it. When that sort of thing happens, when unbelief happens when we proclaim the gospel, whether it's just obliviousness, nonchalance, don't careism, or it's anger, election and predestination lets us breathe that we didn't just screw it up somehow. Because what tends to happen, this is a natural thing, is if you have someone who you've tried to share the gospel with, you'll recall that conversation or those moments or those days or those weeks or those years, and you'll think of every time you screwed up. You'll think, you know, that one time I just kind of snapped at Judy. And I think that's the reason. That's the reason that she won't believe now. I was mean to her that day in the coffee room or the break room. And now she won't have anything to do with the church. Or you'll think, you know, that one time when I was trying to talk to my nephew about the fact that he is gay and is living with this guy, and I was just kind of aggressive with it. And I said, you know what, 
God is not happy about this. And he hasn't talked to me since. And now I'm the reason that that guy's going to hell. I'm the reason that he won't repent and believe. I'm the reason my nephew won't come to church. And you'll recall a thousand instances like that in every relationship. And all of us do that. All of us know people and we think, I'm the reason, I'm the reason, I'm the reason, I'm the reason. You're not the reason. And that's not to excuse your sin or whatever in the, thing, in the situation. You may have sinned against somebody. Probably did. But election frees you from the guilt and shame and pressure of losing an eternal soul. It's not yours to lose. It's not yours to lose. You cannot, cannot do anything to keep any of God's elect out of the kingdom of God. If someone is elect and you go up to him and say, in the name of Jesus, and hit him with a baseball bat on the side of the street, if they're elect, at some point God will call them to himself and they will enter the kingdom. And even though you were wicked and hit him with a baseball bat and said, in the name of Jesus, and you'll have to account for that, You can't keep somebody out of the kingdom if they're meant to be in it, if God has ordained them to eternal life. So election, this doctrine, frees us from mechanistically thinking we can do it. We have the sources. It frees us from this uh, oppressive thought of filling the pews and it frees us to love one another, and it frees you from guilt and shame that are not yours to bear. You may have sinned, but you do not bear eternal weight of souls. You cannot. It's not yours to bear. You can't bear it anyway. So it frees you from that. And instead, what does the doctrine of election do for you? So those are three things that it helps us from And then what is the doctrine of election for? The last verse I'm going to read is from the book of Isaiah. Oops. Sorry. This is Isaiah chapter 48, starting in verse 9. This is God speaking, and he says this. For my name's sake... I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. How should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. So he says, I refrain from pouring out my wrath on individual people for my own sake, for his glory. That these are eternal things that belong to God. And God has determined the way in which he gets the most glory in the whole of the universe is by saving people. And so he has elected them from all eternity past that Christ's blood would be sufficient for them. And at the right time, under the right gospel call, hearing the message, they will hear, they will believe, they will be adopted, and they will enter the kingdom when they die. 
And God says, for my own sake, for my glory, I will not give it to another. That the ultimate reason that election stands is so that we will not take from God what is his. We'll not take it through mechanism. We'll not take it through evangelistic zeal that is ignoring of his people. And we won't do it... um, Sorry, thank you. And it frees us from the shame and the guilt of people not believing. But underneath it all is God gets glory. When somebody is saved, we say what? Whether we believe the doctrine of predestination or not. Praise be to God. The most Arminian rejecter of all things Calvinistic predestination election cannot but praise God and give him all glory in terms of salvation. Even if you want to deny this doctrine, you can't. Because when someone is saved, your reaction, if you know God, is to say, praise be to God, we had nothing to do with it. And so even if you want to reject the doctrine, verbally, intellectually, You can't deny the doctrine if you're a Christian. Because if you do, you rob God of his glory. And no Christian, no Christian wants to do that. And so, instinctively, out of a new heart, every Christian proclaims this truth. Every Christian prays this truth, hopes in this truth, even if they deny it with their lips. And so my hope this morning is not, it's so that, If you struggle with this, if you think it's not a good thing or it's a difficult thing or it doesn't exist, then instead you would realize even if you want to deny it, you can't deny it. That the way you talk about people being saved is God-glorifying and man-abasing. That there is no way to believe in a God of heaven without believing in a doctrine of election. And so I want you to just... Put together the things that you already know about how you respond when people are saved and what God has said about it and go, those are good and the same. And I want to believe those. And then when we go out in April and we try our best to take the gospel to people and we pray and hope and plead for God to save them, that the pressure will be off that we'll still be able to love one another. And if we screw up a conversation with somebody on the street, the eternal weight of their soul we will not hold until we die. Because God will be glorified, not us.